My name is Max Corson. I'm from originally from Baxley, Georgia. That's in Appling County, and that is the same county where Foster Sellers grew up. I uh, attended the University of Georgia and have two degrees from there, and I have the PhD from uh, the University of Florida, where I worked for seven years. My whole idea was to be a journalist, and uh, so I have had experience in radio uh, journalism. I've had experience in wire service journalism. I've had experience in newspaper and magazine uh, journalism. Uh, from that, I uh, then moved into the academic area and eventually began uh, teaching in mass communications. And so I've taught mass communications at a couple of colleges, including the University of South Florida and Tampa. And um, I enjoyed I enjoyed teaching. It was fun. As a journalist, you've obviously worked on a number of different you know, stories throughout your years. What stories fascinated you the most when you were working as a journalist? I did not have any of the uh, World War II as beginning type stories. But uh, the thing, I think the thing that a, that a journalist needs to be aware of is that there are a lot of of stories on the local level that are worth following up, worth looking into. And um, I know once I got into the wire service work with United Press International, then I was covering things that if they were local, but they were in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is capital of North Carolina. And uh, at one point I was writing a story about the new state house. And uh, so there are these, the, the thing about being, I think, a good journalist is to uh, realize that you're responsible for all kinds of stories and all kinds of stories will come your way. Tell me about Baxley real quick. Uh, you, you grew up in Baxley. What's Baxley like? Baxley is a small town, about 3,000 population. And when I was there, see, I was born in 1936 and... Um, my early childhood was during World War II, and there were no factories there and uh, no military activity. So as far as I was concerned, uh, it was just another day. Uh, but there were men and women who served, and some uh, died, of course. But Baxley in those days had two paved roads. <laughs> one was US-1, which is a uh, tourist road from uh, Maine down to Key West, and the other is US 341, which ran through Baxley from Macon down to Brunswick. Everything else was dirt road, which may tell why the girls I dated all lived in Baxley, where the roads were either, if they weren't paved, they were at least short. And uh, so it was, it, was an, it was a period sort of at the end of, a, um, of an era that followed the Civil War in which um, things, either you were reasonably well-to-do if you lived in town and you had a, had a business, or you had a farm and you worked hard at it, or you were um, a worker for the farm. So these were the people that uh, I grew up around. They came to town, the ones who lived in the country, they came to town on a Saturday. That was the only day they could come. And many of them came with mule and wagon. In fact, one of my memories 
in going to the movie theater in Baxley, which I did quite regularly because it only cost nine cents and because there was no television and radio was not reliable. But at any rate, walking to the to the theater, I passed a hardware store and there was always a brand new green wooden wagon for mules lying, uh, sitting out in front ready to be sold. So I think I can truthfully say that I saw the last generation of, of about 6,000 years of people who used animals for which the great speed was 10 miles an hour. And uh, those disappeared after World War II because then everybody bought some kind of a car or truck. And so that I, I see that as being an interesting period in my life. Um, it was always assumed my, my parents went to college. It was assumed I was going, never questioned it. Never questioned I was going to university, never questioned I was going to be a journalist. And uh, so with those ideas in mind, uh, that was the path I followed. Perhaps the most most famous resident of Baxley is a man that you came to uh, be f very familiar with. Tell me uh, who he is and um, about his his early life, where you came from. Foster Sellers was a um, product of the uh, one of the rural families owned a little bit of land. Uh, he was a child of a second marriage and the only child of the second marriage. The father was not particularly interested in him. And uh, as a result, the mother more or less looked after Foster, and that was the one to whom Foster was constantly uh, devoted. He uh, did work on the farm. He went to a very limited school in Surrency and uh, graduated, I think, after 11 years. He went into the uh, Marine Corps, was not happy there. And when he got out, he came back to Baxley and borrowed some money and built a drive-in cafe, which was a new and exciting addition to the community. And it was very popular. And Foster almost immediately used whatever money he could get to buy himself a yellow and black Ford convertible. And in it, he drove the prettiest girls in town up and down the streets instead of looking after his business, which went broke. And uh, at that point, he began moving in the area of criminality. Now, you have to understand, southern Georgia was sort of like the entire area of Mississippi in that it was Baptist and it was dry. And so if you lived in Appling County, you did not buy illegal drink. But in the adjoining county was the town of, of Alma. And Alma didn't care what was going on. And on the stretch of US-1 south of Alma were all sorts of juke joints and honky-tonks and pick-em-ups. And uh, this is where Foster began hanging out. And he liked the element of uh, people that he found there. They had different values. They knew or said they knew how to get a lot of money quickly. And so as a result, he began uh, entering that. His inspiration, even in high school, was to be a criminal. And he was inspired by a famous criminal of the day named Willie the Actor Sutton. Now, Sutton made his, his name nationally uh, during the Prohibition era period. 
and uh, he served a number of years in prison. But he eventually got out in the 1950s, and he was so well known that the American Express Company hired him to do a series of TV ads in which Willie the Actor Sutton, the infamous bank robber, would say, your money is safer with American Express cards than with a bank, and I ought to know. So Foster said that that was his inspiration, and he went from there. He was going to make a million dollars. He was going to take care of his mother, and he was going to build a business of his own and, um, and enjoy life like he never had enjoyed it before. And truth of the matter is, he tried. Every time he stole a fair amount of money, he went into some line of business and, and lost it. <laughs> so um, he, his idea was good, but his method was uh, impractical. You came to know him uh, in a way that you could actually write really, you know, the only good book um, on this era about him and the people he ran with. So tell me how you came to know him. Well, over the years, I would see his name usually in the uh, paper, usually in an Atlanta paper, that he had been arrested or he was suspected of, of committing some kind of a robbery. In other words, he became a, um, uh, a personality. And I think because of his high intelligence, he was a good-looking guy, got along well with the ladies. And he, had, he had what I think would be fair to say, he had charisma, which separated him from other gangsters who more or less were uh, intelligent, but they lacked the, the polish, the skill, the allure that Foster possessed. And uh, so I kept being made aware that uh, Foster was, uh, was news. And um, so when we moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina in the 1990s, I realized that um, at my age, I would start putting my journalistic skills to use. And so I began thinking, what can I write? And the first thing that came to mind was, I wonder if there's a story about Foster Sellers. And so I began looking into it, finally was able to track him to a prison in Texas, contacted him, told him who I was, he knew who I was, and um, told him I wanted to write the story of his life if he'd cooperate. And um, he agreed. And it turns out that Foster... Here's the thing that made Foster different from other criminals who were more or less intelligent or more or less educated. Foster was a diarist. He knew how to write. He didn't write well. He never did get his, uh, his, his, his verbs straightened out. But he could recall all sorts of things, and he didn't mind putting them down on paper. Foster wrote what? passed for the truth, and I think most of what he wrote was the truth. There was no reason for it not to be. But I think he also chose what he would write, and in some cases he provided his interpretation of what is right. So I ended up with a combination essentially of truths and, and a fair amount of um, legend. And uh, because Foster is no longer with us, there's no one around to challenge it. We live with the legend. Let's talk about the, the early days of his criminality. Um, tell me about the, the crimes that he chose to commit um, when, uh, when he began. He didn't have a scheme. 
He started out trying to steal checks from a uh, dealer in livestock. That didn't work. And um, he tried several other things and ended up serving time in the uh, in Georgia County uh, prisons. Uh, eventually, though, he came to realize that, that banks were the best choice. And locally, there are a lot of little banks in southern Georgia. And most of them had very few protections. Now, Foster was at first a bank burglar. We use the term bank robber because it is more commonplace. But in, the, in the, its Foster's beginning, and certainly in southern Georgia, in the small towns that were there, in the small banks, it was much more logical to break into the bank at night with a torch and cut a hole in the uh, vault and take the money that was there. And so he and some of his buddies from Alma and from Baxley uh, did quite well in um, burglarizing banks. And this continued for quite a while until, uh, in part because of Foster's high success as a bank burglar, the um, FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, decided that they would require higher standards from banks. And so even the small banks in Georgia and other uh, places had to have greater protection. And this led Foster eventually to realize that bank burglary was going to was an obsolete task. And the better way and the quicker way and the more rewarding way financially was to rob a bank walk in with a pistol, demand money, and leave. Well, now, this is the science of bank robbery, <laughs> and Foster was a master at it. I think, I think, of course, underlying it all was that his intelligence and his charisma, he had people who trusted him and who would work with him and do what he said. So Foster figured out that, first of all, you had a, to have a means of getting to the bank, and you had to have a means of getting away from the bank. And so that meant stealing, stealing two cars or two vehicles. One would be the so-called hot car, which you drive to the bank and escape from. And the other would be the cool car that was hidden off in the woods and nobody had seen it. And that's the one they'd get into and drive away ultimately. Foster uh, also had arrangements that uh, if they needed to, they could spend the night in the woods to let uh, things cool off a little bit before um, uh, leaving. I think for the typical person who can come into a, a, a handful of money in a hurry, the idea is to spend it in a hurry. And Foster, his, his question was, first of all, how do we get to the bank? Second, how do we get away from it? Third, how do we watch our money? He did not believe in dumping the money and running to go spend the money in Las Vegas or uh, Miami or something like that. So he cautioned the men who worked with him to be more judicious uh, in terms of what they, um, they got from it. And he believed also in dividing the money immediately. That way there was no um, suspicion on the part of the others that he had uh, made off with or had taken an inordinate amount. Um, Foster said uh, in one of his letters to me that he, because I, I, I asked him, I said, how much did you steal over the years? And now uh, we're talking the 1960s and 1970s and money then was not money today. But he said, I think I probably stole around $8 million 
all in all. And that's not a bad figure, even by today's standards. And uh, from that, he would divide the amount equally with the men who um, worked with him. And he almost always took two other men with him into the bank. And each had a specific job to do in the bank. And they tried to leave within about three minutes of having entered the bank. And um, so he was a, he, he had a scientific approach to it. And it seemed to work because he, he and the others robbed well over a hundred banks in the South alone. And who knows how many in the, um, in the West and in the Midwest. You wrote that he um, took the common uh, blowtorch and created like an entirely new tool um, that worked better for him. Do you, do you remember how that worked? When they were bank burglars, uh, they would take an acetylene torch, which is sort of like something you see at a filling station or a, a car repair shop. They would, of course, steal that. <laughs> Great big heavy thing. They'd break into the bank and then they would use that to cut slowly but surely into the bank vault. And Foster eventually learned about a burning bar, and it would do the job in just a few moments. The only problem with the burning bar was that it was bright. So you had to be very careful when you used it and where, or it would show up inside the bank through the windows. So he was able to use that, but it was a, a tool that he had to be very careful about. Yeah, I think I remember too that like it also burned the money at some point. <laughs> well, there was that too. Yes, uh, in burning into a vault, there was always the risk that the heat from the the torch would would scorch the money, and this was what the banks burglars called frog eyes, and they had to be really careful about using frog eyes because. Uh, the, of course, the police were aware of it, and they would pass words. If you see any money with holes burned in it, make a note of who, who passed it. Let us know really quickly. So frog eyes was not something you necessarily wanted. And it was one of the uh, byproducts of bank burglary. Now, the nice thing, if I can use the word nice, throw it in quotes, nice thing about robbing a bank is you take money that's clean and you go away with it and uh, nobody knows unless you pick up some money that was numbered. And um, there was always that risk, but you didn't have frog eyes. <laughs> At least there was that. There's a vast array of characters in your book um, and each of them are just true characters. Tell me how Foster, I mean, picked up his friends. How did he fall in with this group of with this group of guys that he worked with um, over the course of his years? Well, he started, of course, with people who were living in the Baxley, Alamo area. Um, some of them were so, shall we say, limited that they couldn't read. In fact, uh, I cited in the book, one of the early associates asked Foster one day, what does B-A-N-K spell? And Foster said, bank. And the guy said, oh, I kind of thought so. Now, when you're dealing with that level of intelligence and mentality, um, there are limits to which they are useful. And they also tended to be caught quickly and sent to jail quickly. But uh, prison was also a source of, um, of learning for Foster and of making contacts with people who either directly or indirectly could be of help to him later. And that led eventually to his um, uh, 
getting to know a man named Fleming, Charles Fleming in Savannah, who was quite a criminal in his day and all sorts of things, a numbers racket, prostitution, bank, not bank robbery, but he would break into buildings and, and uh, he, was, he was a great man for breaking into safes. And he taught Foster a great deal. And so from that, I think it was sort of a, uh, 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 a spread of information, different people being of help to Foster and eventually uh, Foster's finding people who could be more depended upon because uh, the ones who were alcoholics, the ones who had big mouths, uh, they were not um, trustworthy. And uh, what he needed was people who were trustworthy. And I think his career reflects that. I think the thing that impressed me a lot throughout the book was the degree of loyalty um, that number one, he showed to his, his good old boys, but um, even more so that they showed to him. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. And you used an interesting phrase. Foster claimed that there was no such thing as the Dixie Mafia. He said that it was invented by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as a publicity stunt. And later on, the FBI, he said, invented the term the Dawson Gang which was a misnomer if there ever was one, because the man for whom it was named was a teenager, whereas Foster and the others were in their 30s and older. And uh, Billy Ray Dawson was just a, um, a, a minor worker. And so somebody in, um, in the FBI thought there would be an interesting parallel. Who knows who would pick up on it? So Foster denied the, the um, business about... Um, uh, Dixie Mafia. He denied that there existed such thing as a Dawson game. In fact, Billy Ray denied it. But what Foster called his friends were good old boys. The good old boys did this and the good old boys did that. And a sizable number of them either lived in or operated from or came occasionally to Greenville, South Carolina. And this was a place that uh, Foster continually uh, returned to. And one of the reasons, I'm convinced that a major reason, was Foster had diabetes and he had to have medicine for it that uh, was prescribed. Now, prescription medicine is dangerous to have if you're a criminal because the police can track it. And so Foster needed a source of reliable medicine that was not traceable. And one of the men he worked with in the Greenville area knew a doctor, perhaps a Dr. Feelgood type doctor, but be that as it may, a doctor who would make that kind of medicine available without prescription or would write the prescription for some fake person. The main thing was Foster was assured of, of the medicine. And with that, he was, he was safe in uh, doing many of the things that he did. I think the most compelling overall story in the book is his run through Florida um, without having his diabetes uh, medicine because it shows who he is from, you know, and how, and how dedicated he is to uh, not getting caught, I think. And as that would lead to the story of him, you know, finding a, a good Dr. Feelgood, could you just at least briefly tell me about this run through Florida that he took? Well... That was one of those situations where he had just, I think, broken out of one of the prisons that he was had been in in Alabama. And um, he used some money, uh, undoubtedly illegal money, to buy a new vehicle and was traveling um, 
I think from Florida, probably headed toward Greenville or someplace like that. And uh, the police spotted him and chased him. And this was up in the panhandle of Florida. He eventually had to abandon the uh, vehicle in a, in a field, and he escaped into the woods and had all sorts of misadventures there, including having to uh, kill a chicken and cook it by means of an electric cord in a bucket of water, which he said was not particularly good because he realized the importance of salt thereafter. At any rate, as he continued through this area trying to avoid the police, it became apparent to him that one of his mistakes was he had left his, his medicine in the truck. And as, the, as time went by, if you have something like diabetes, the uh, symptoms of it become more obvious. And he was getting dizzier and he was losing uh, track of time. And eventually he was, um, he was captured at a, um, at a motel after, um, I think, stealing another vehicle and, and getting a pistol from someone. And so as a result, he was in a diabetic coma and in serious condition for quite a while. And um, from that, he then went into prison for, I think, several years. But that taught him the lesson. And I think that is why uh, the doctor in, in Greenville was a major source of, of help.